Welcome to the audio version of SOCH 119, the largest interactive class about race and culture in the world. Join the nearly 800 students watching in person live Tuesdays and Thursdays on YouTube at youtube.com slash SOCH 119. For more information about the class or how to watch, go to SOCH119.org. Now from Happy Valley, it's time for class. Take it away, Sam. So lots happening in the world. And uh, we had a, a, a great semester just in terms of topics and all, right? I think that between the students in the class and my own kind of understanding and thoughts about what this is and what we're doing and why we're doing it, uh, it feels like uh, we're finding a, a sweet spot. And I'm getting more and more comfortable um, with the uh, volunteers who come up in the classroom and really working with anybody who, who shows up there because they apply to volunteer. And, uh, and then we, you know, got some kind of basic information on them and then we select them and, uh, on the morning of a class and they come up, but I, you know, never know who once in a while I know, but mostly, but for the most part, I don't know who they are and what they look like and what they, um, are going to say. Um, I have no idea what they're going to say. And so I'm, I'm getting much more comfortable with this idea that I've been saying for a long time and that I learned from my wife, that everybody has something to say about the world from the position in which they are standing. Uh, everybody sees something. And sometimes you just have to keep shifting the question a little bit and asking a, a slightly different version of whatever that question is uh, that you're interested in, um, whatever the issue is on the table, but everybody in the end has something to say. And, uh, and you just got to kind of get them relaxed enough to, to offer their vision. And, and human beings are smart. That's the second thing. Human beings are smart and they're insightful, right? Because they see something. And so, um, it's rare that, what's up, Cora dog? It's rare that, uh, people don't have anything to say. So in any case, uh, but sometimes what happens is I, I, I might get a little nervous and start pushing something, thinking that, oh, wait, we got to get this conversation moving a, a little faster or, or we've got to go in a slightly different direction. Um, but less so uh, this semester. I really feel like I've found a groove and found a sweet spot to be able to just stay relaxed and just see what comes out. And what I'm finding is that people who are watching the videos and responding to the videos are really often very happy with those with this when it the pace slows down a little right because they feel like they're really watching people think and watching students think and that's essential that's really important and that feels really good to me so in any case uh that's the criteria upon which i would say we had a really good semester um Aside from you know increasing growing numbers of emails that we are receiving from people that are thanking us for it, so in any hey let's let's uh Lucas let Jeff let's bring Lucas on. Hey. 
Get in here, get in here, get in here. Listen up, we're talking about some stuff today. Tune in, it's Social 19 time. Hey, Lucas, man, uh, welcome Hello. to the stream. <laughs> Thank you, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here and I'm excited for us to get to have a conversation. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really cool. Um, so let's just quickly. So you reached out to me maybe a couple of weeks ago, two or three weeks ago. Well, I, maybe it's a little bit complicated in that I had initially sent an email. Oh man, maybe a year and a year ago, maybe nine months. Ah, and nice. I was somebody who just the YouTube algorithm that B had recommended some of the videos from Soch One Nineteen, and. I had just found the conversations to be really, really insightful and interesting and different than a lot of the discourse on whatever the contentious issues of the time were. Yeah. And so I had sent an email basically just saying, hey, the, you know, thank you for doing this. I think this is a really valuable resource and this is really cool to see. And so then following a, a, a whatever, eight or nine month delay, I think then you got back in touch or somebody on the team got back in oh, touch I and did, we yeah. started having this conversation. Oh yeah. Cause I'm a knucklehead and I <laughs> forgot, I forgot to check that email address. I think you sent it to Sam at social19.org, which, which by the way, I should add, we created that email address so that people could write emails to me <laughs> and, and respond. And then, you know, whatever it would yeah. be, but I, because I'm a knucklehead, I forget to to uh, to check. Well, it. But now I'm checking it, man. Like I'm life, life gets in the way, right? In, in, you know what, man? I, I have four different email inboxes that I'm managing at any one moment, and so I actually have. And then in one, my one email, I have about four different emails, the aliases that go into that. So, yeah, it does get complicated. Hey, so you're a student up at up uh, uh, in Boston at Harvard. I am. Yeah. I am. And what year are you? So I just entered the PhD program, um, but I also did my undergrad here. So I've, okay. been, I've been around for a lot of my adult life. Ah, dude. Okay, perfect, man. So you're a perfect person to talk to. And I initially <laughs> said, hey, I want to, th this was when I first said, hey, why don't you hop on? This was a, a week or so ago. I'm not sure. When, when was it that I said, oh, let's have a conversation? After after the congressional hearing, was it? Uh I no, it, it was before. Right before. It was before. Yeah. yeah. So I had been, I had been watching, you know, I watched how things are unfolding since October 7th uh, here at Penn State and at different universities. But I've been watching a lot of stuff happening at, happening at Harvard and Yale and Princeton and so on. Some of the Ivies where there's really a lot of, in, in Columbia, a lot of, act, in Penn, a lot of activism. And and I was thinking, of course, I know what that means when I, we say a lot of activism, right? Like I've been around, I've been teaching for four, I've been like teaching for 40 years at a university, right? So I know what it looks like. It looks like one thing on the outside, but another thing on, on the other side. But Harvard, I was really watching. And I think it's because I've been watching closely because the media were really following the students there more so than lots of other places, right? Well, so, and in some cases, very literally. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So, tell me what 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 have you seen? Let's go back a couple months now. Like, what what yeah. have you been seeing? So, with respect to Israel Palestine, there has not been a ton of very visible protests prior mm -hmm. to October seventh. Mm -hmm. There's 
around Harvard, there's at any given time, there's a degree of activism that's just around. And let's say a year or two ago, as people were arriving back post-COVID, the one of the common issues that was often discussed and protested about was Harvard divesting from fossil fuels, for example. Yeah, yeah. So, so to one extent, there's a there's small pockets here and there of people protesting about specific issues, but then after October seventh was when the all of the maybe three dozen or so groups that were pro-Palestine or affiliated or allied with those organizations released a letter saying we hold Israel entirely responsible for the attacks. So 3,000 students, you mean not 3,000 groups? Sorry, right? three dozen student groups. Yeah, got student groups. Yeah, okay. And following- Wait, hang on, hang on. 3,000 student groups or 3,000 students who are three, in different groups? Three dozen. I believe it was about- Oh, three dozen. I'm sorry. 31. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Let me move this a little bit you. closer. Yeah. So, th- and that happened shortly after- October 7th. And that is what really set off the the chain of events. And yeah. I think a lot of the media coverage. Got you. Yeah. Because it seems like it's so big, right? Yeah. And, and it, it's not uncommon for student groups to release some sort of statement for a, yeah. a lot of global issues, at least yeah. here. Yeah, yeah. That may be something that's a little bit odd about Harvard. I'm not sure. But it's common enough and, and student groups have done similar sorts of things for issues in the past, but this was one that caught a lot of attention from, yeah. from really yeah, all sides. I, yep. I agree. I agree. Yeah. It's not that common here, for example, mm-hmm. at Penn state student groups. I mean, we have different groups who will release a statement, but nobody really pays much attention for the most part. Okay. Yeah. So you, so then how did, other student. So what? The, so what do you see in terms of activism there beyond people signing their names on a letter? Like, what have you seen after you know October seventh? So there have been a, a handful of different types of protests. So on the one hand, there were a set of students, maybe in the last month or so, who were mm-hmm. outside of one of our buildings, who were chanting free Palestine and, and some mm-hmm. of the other slogans that are quite common. And there was, and, and it was happening during classes sort of as everything was, was wrapping up and it was in a, it was outside one of the buildings where a lot of co- courses are held. Mm-hmm. There's also been a sit-in held in one of the buildings that's also usually used to house classes. And, and that only lasted for maybe 12 hours or so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There've been, Protests uh, slightly off campus that were related to the the doxing truck, which I can talk about a little bit more and unpack. Mm-hmm. And and those those have been sort of coming and going as the trucks have been coming and going, and and it's a little bit difficult to pin down exactly when they started and when they stopped. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Otherwise, there was a protest. It may have been earlier today. Mm-hmm. about following the congressional hearing and a lot of the calls for President Gay to resign from external actors, there mm-hmm. were a lot of students who came to show their support for her being allowed to stay. And so that's maybe the latest protest that has been at least a, a chain reaction or a consequence of of all of the recent news coverage that Harvard has been receiving. Hey, so let me – all right, so now let me go in a slightly – 
when you say a lot, so just today, for example, do you have a sense of how many students showed up at that or? Maybe 50 to a hundred. Uh-huh. I think I, I, and the reason, okay. And I asked that because, so what I'm getting a lot, so, so, you know, I mean, we we're just meeting now. This is the first time we're talking, right? We've yeah. emailed back and forth and stuff. I, one of the things, uh, most common things that people say in emails that they send to me, and and I get probably maybe I say on average like between six and ten, somewhere in there, about eight a day, I guess, right? Um, and that's been true for maybe the the past month or so. But the the most common thing that people say is like they thank me for giving them a window into a college classroom. And if you don't live near a college campus or spend a lot of time on a college campus and you're just kind of, wa you know, you're watching CNN or, or Fox or reading the New York Times or something, you really don't have an understanding of what it means when, you know, there's a protest at Harvard today mm -hmm. or protest at Penn State. And, you know, you've got somewhere 6,500 some undergraduate students there. And if you had the grad students in, it's, it's right. you know, it's a lot more, but it's over 10,000, I guess. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. But 50 to 100 students, a protest at Harvard, 50, 50, let's say it's 75, right, today. Sure. 75 students do not represent the students at Harvard, right? So when you say, hey, there's a protest today, that's really a very small number of people. And you don't even know if they're all students, right? Right, right. And and that's that's true, not just with respect to everything recently, but, but yeah. I think my impression is that that's historically been true. Yep, yep. It, it's all, yeah, it's always been true. Listen, even like the anti-war, look, going back to Vietnam. So I did a little bit of content analysis of the Vietnam War protests and at campuses around the country. And, you know, people talk about, well, you know, campuses were really on fire and they were uprisings. Well, there were a few periods at some campuses where that was true and a few periods, meaning, you know, like a week or a week and a half. But, you know, here at Penn State, for example, there were kind of and throughout the Vietnam War there were two major protests and one lasted about 6 hours as best as I can assess and the other mm -hmm. kind of lasted a couple of days but that's not a campus being on fire the Vietnam War went on for almost a decade and even though most of the protests were happening in a very small amount of time but the idea is we create these stories about students and stories about in this particular case you know the left students right the radical students, but you know, it's really campuses are pretty boring, even in a moment when there's a lot of uprising, there's really not much going on. And in most times you wouldn't know about it. And I'm, so I'm just wondering kind of your sense as a student there, is that kind of, would you say it in a similar way? And when I say campuses are boring, I mean, like, there's just like, I, it's not what it seems from the outside. I would, from speaking for myself and and the people that I regularly interact with in my life, we have been, let's say, aware of of the events happening around. And and for example, a few days ago there was a plane that was flying overhead our main campus, and it had a Palestinian flag. And on on one day there was the phrase "Harvard hates Jews" attached to the back of it, and I think it came back a second day and had a slightly altered version of a similar phrase. And, mm -hmm. you know, you look out your window and you see that that's happening and, and maybe you stop and gawk at it for 
30 seconds or a minute, but, but then you return to your day. And I think that's in a lot of ways exemplifying of what the usual, maybe more typical Harvard students day has been like. I mean, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. context, our semester just wrapped up and a lot of us are either just finished with finals or squarely in the midst of them. And in the people that I've spoken with, their primary concern is, let me finish up the semester. I'm worried about getting some sort of job or internship this summer. Yeah. And it's a, it's a lot of the, which, which is very typical for students in their day to day. And so I would say that for, you know, 99% of students, your daily life has gone more unchanged than not. Yeah. 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 And that's both, that's both good and bad. Right. I mean, because the, the other side is of act activism, whatever the activism is. I mean, you know, things, you know, that this country was founded on activism, right. <laughs> Which is odd. It was founded on a revolution and on activism. So, you know, the, the, all of the so-called, you know, what we relate, identify as the founding fathers of the United States, they were very much activists. And so there's, there's a way in which activism changes the world, right? The civil rights movement, I mean, we can just go on and on about that. So the fact that most people um, were even go, go back to, you know, 1772, you know, uh, most people are farming and they're just getting <laughs> on with their lives and they really have no idea what's going on elsewhere. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and also to that end too, I think there's, one of the things that I've seen is, in my mind, a bit of a mischaracterization of who is actually involved in these protests, even for the, the minority of students who are attending. The, the common picture that I've seen is something like anybody with a direct or adjacent tie to Israel or to Palestine, either you're from the area, you've got family there, you, have, mm -hmm. you feel very strong cultural or religious roots to that region, your life is being entirely captured by this conflict and you're spending all of your time either protesting or organizing yeah. around this issue. My experience and understanding from talking with the handful of people that I know who are from those regions is, is actually that they are in probably more ways just trying to get through day by yeah. day. And, yeah. and in one sense, you can understand that in that, you know, I spoke with a, a, a young woman whom I know and I asked her how she was doing and her response was, I'm just trying to make sure that my family's okay. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I've lost a few loved ones in the past week and I've got this project that's due in, in 48 hours. And so, yeah. so I really don't have much time to focus on anything else. And, yeah. and so on the one hand, I would say that it's not all people whose lives are most directly affected by the underlying conflict who you see protesting. Many yeah. of them are yeah, still yeah, inside. Yeah. And then on the other hand, I know some people who have been going to the protests who themselves don't have any direct ties. They mm -hmm. just see and feel strong empathy for a loss of human life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And so yeah. I think it can go both ways in that, you know, you might think intuitively that anybody who's from Tel Aviv is at these protests and, and screaming yeah. and raising a, a picket sign, but that's not been my, what I'm seeing here. Yeah. Yeah. It's not what I'm seeing here at Penn state either. In fact, I have a, a photo that I, I just kind of pulled, uh, you know, I found the other day of one of the protests that was happening at the end of November here on our, on our main lawn, we call it the old main lawn. And, uh, and I didn't see anybody in the photo at all. It was a, in support of 
Palestinians. Um, I didn't see anybody in the photo who looked even remotely like they would be Palestinian. And, uh, and so it, it's, it's very, yeah, it's very similar here. Um, yeah. So it's, it's kind of, it's, a, but it's a curious thing, right? Like you, and you know, and I know, and, and one of the things I talk about is I travel a lot and I find myself in lots of places in the world and, and I, wherever I go, I, I discover that, you know, life w almost, almost invariably, right. Life that's happening there is just kind of like life that's happening everywhere else. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, when I read about things or about happening on college campuses or, you know, it's like, you know, here we had a, um, you know, a, a, a kind of a really conservative reactionary right-wing speaker, uh, who came to campus, uh, no, I don't know. We had, no, we didn't. We had, uh, it was, the, uh, this, ah, whatever. I don't know. And students, some student did something, you know, well, the headline around, around the country is like Penn state students. Yeah. Uh, create whatever. Right. And I'm like, nah, man, that was two students. We got a hundred thousand students <laughs> at Penn state university. That was two people, you know, yeah. like, please, well, but that's, you know, but that's what happens. And so I think I wanted to just talk to you to just, just kind of get a sense of, okay, what's happening. And of course, it's a little bit different there, right? You're in the middle of Boston. I'm in the middle of cornfields. So. Well, and, and it may also be different in, in another way in that for better or for worse, Harvard is a hotbed for a lot of attention. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. and you know, in one sense, that's really useful in that if you're if you've thought through an issue and you want to share your views and have a conversation, you you get mm -hmm. maybe a greater luxury to do that than you would in in most other places. Mm -hmm. The flip side, though, is that you are under usually more scrutiny, and yeah, and and, and so we're seeing maybe some of the the consequences of that as well. Yeah, yeah, I hear that. Yeah, there's something to be said for you know Harvard student says blank as just being attention grabbing more so than John Smith who happens to attend a university in Boston or, or like, yeah, Indiana university of Pennsylvania, which nobody really pays much attention to. Yeah. Unless it's something really, really extreme. Huh? So are you, so are you finding that if you, I mean, what, it, what so here's what it is here, right. Yeah. With my students, um, the vast majority of my students really don't are not paying attention to, to the, they don't know anything about the conflict. They're not paying attention to the conflict and they know maybe a tiny little bit, um, but really beyond that, they're just not, uh, they're not following. It's very complex. They're not following much of anything. They're not following, following cop, the, you know, the, the, the meetings over in Dubai either. Right. Um, so, uh, I'm wondering, would you say that what's, what's your perspective on that? If you kind of, like how are Harvard students? Are they a little bit more, yeah, I don't know, like more thoughtful about things happening out in the world or what would you say? I mean, you don't have anything to test it against, so I don't know just what you would Well, it's a complicated question in a few ways. So one question that you might ask is something like, are Harvard students interested in trying to be more informed? Yeah, dude, there you go, man. Beautiful. And, yep. And I think broadly here, the answer is yes. Uh-huh. 
The extent to which one can actually do that, though, I think is a, a less clear question, in part because it's really difficult to, if you just go online and you know Google Israel-Palestine conflict and try to get a handle yeah. on what's happening, it's challenging to figure out what is truth, what is propaganda, what is somewhere yeah. in between. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and I mean, at the end of the day, anybody who is relatively naive to a situation is going to be subject to a lot of the same traps as anybody else. And it doesn't matter yeah. what school you attend or, or even how interested you might be. Sometimes that can actually be a bit of a hindrance and yeah, really ferreting totally. out truth. So, so do I think that people here are on average more accurate? I, with the exception of maybe just by the fact that Harvard students are a little bit more diverse and that there's more people who come from you know, someplace internationally. And so maybe mm -hmm. you have a slightly higher percentage of people who have very strong personal connections to a region and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. can get something that's closer to a ground truth. But, but mm -hmm. for, you know, the other 98% of us, I, I don't think they're any per se better in, informed, yeah, even yeah. if they try to be. And, yeah. and I would say that the same for myself as well. I, you know, this is a challenging thing to make sense of even with perfect information, let alone with a lot of propaganda thrown in there and you don't know per se, which is which. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's just one of, I, I mean, I could off the top of my head right now, list off 25 other issues that I would say like, ah, I'd like my students to be informed about this, Either this area of the world or the conflict that's happening right now or whatever the case is. I mean, it's, it, there's so much, man, there is so much, you know? Um, yeah. So, so I, I think I might say, I do not think that on average Penn state students are really have a, on average, mm -hmm. right that the majority of Penn State students have a deep desire to be informed about certain ev about events that are happening in the world. I, I just would not say that. Um, and it's, you know, we have different students, right? But uh, yeah, I, I don't think that's true. Well, and, and I mean, so, some students, they're, the thing that they did in much of their earlier life, say, say through high school, was to be way more involved in local civic issues than the average student. And so, yeah. you know, in that sense, maybe there's there's a number of students here who who at least have a, a background or expertise on a specific issue. Yeah. But the extent to which that translates to another issue that is on the other yeah. side of the world, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm with you on that. I'm with you. On, sure. But every, and again, at Penn State, every student's connected to something, right? I mean, really something. But um yeah i think it's but you know like the other side and you're young right so when you get to, to my age you know you'll look back and you'll you know you'll have a i mean a lot of people my age they we make the mistake of thinking that we were much more informed about the world or thoughtful or smarter thinking about things than students or young people are today but you know i know i go back to when i was you know 20 or 21. I, I mean, I wasn't, man. I, I didn't, you know, at some point when I was 23, I started reading the New York Times every single day, every day, man. I would spend an hour to an hour and a half reading through the New York Times. And that was my way of just sort of getting a random sample of life all over the world. You know, not the opinion pages. I didn't care about people's opinions. I just wanted to know like, okay, what's happening. That's when I really started to build up my repertoire of, of understanding of politics and geography, I will say. Well, and, um, and I mean, 
my impression is that the let's say the illusion of deeper understanding is a relatively universal phenomenon. For yeah. example, yeah. if I ask you or, or somebody on the street, hey, how does a toilet work? Yeah. Do, how well do you think you know the answer to that question? Yeah. I bet if I, I, you know, most people that say something like, well, I, I'm sure I could figure it out. And then if I showed them a toilet and said, hey, here's all the parts, now put it together and let it function. Yeah. You, you would have a better chance of me solving differential geometry. I mean, it's just it's <laughs> a, Rubik's, not, a Rubik's cube. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it's yeah. So, <laughs> so maybe that's a really good example. Yeah. Well, and and one of the things that I'm hearing you say is, you may just have accumulate you and one in in the pluralistic sense may just accumulate more experiences where you've thought you've known something very well and turned out to be wrong. And at a certain point, if you're sophisticated, you look back and go, "Well, I've been wrong on these twelve other issues that I felt." very strong convictions towards. And so maybe the same is, is being held true here. Yeah. Yeah. That, well, that's, that's, how, that's how I feel anyway. And yeah. Now listen, man, cool that's that. the fat one fallacy. I forget that something bar or whatever. I forget what it is. I, I know I never remember any, I don't remember authors. I don't remember titles. I don't remember anything. I just remember ideas, but the <laughs> one thinking fallacy whereby the smartest people, the, the wisest people, the most thoughtful people in the room are the very first ones who are going to say, yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't know. This is a really complex issue. And the least intelligent or thoughtful person is going to be the very first one to say, like, here's the answer to that question. You know, that's just consistent constantly. You and so as I, sorry. Yeah, no, so as I, as I get older, the one thing I get a little bit wiser, I know less. I just really can't say like, yeah, I can't say anything, you know? So Maybe that's a good, but I guess that's why I bring my students up to the front of the room and I sit and they sit on the, the, I have them come up and sit on the table and I ask them questions. Cause I feel like I don't have answers to anything anymore. So let me ask you, maybe you'll have answers. What are people <laughs> saying about your yeah, hey, one final, what are students one final thing? Like, do you, I know that you obviously have not taken a poll of the whole students, but it's just in your small world around you. Like, I mean, I see that it looks like the, the alumni are backing her, but you know, like, What's what are people right around you? Yeah, my impression. What are they saying? Yeah, my, my impression has been that there's a large outpouring of support for her, and and even among students who are specifically unhappy that she didn't condemn calls uh -huh. for calls that that may be construed as anti-Semitism or or that very explicitly are as strongly as they would have liked. I think there's a very universal concern that we don't want Harvard or, or really in any other university for that matter to be dictated too heavily by people who are external to the university and in a way where freedom of speech is being strongly infringed upon and people are being forced in or out of different positions. And, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and so uh, I would say my impression has been that, that people have been quite supportive. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's really complex, man. It's very complex. Well, but, and, go ahead. Go ahead. Keep going. So one other thing that I, I think we haven't, we, I, I alluded to earlier that, that maybe bears worth touching on further is one of the responses from people who had signed this letter saying we hold Israel responsible 
was there was a, a truck that would had have students' names and faces plastered squarely on it that was driving around campus under the under the heading Harvard's leading anti-Semites. Ah, and in addition to that, there were websites that were being created, put up, hosted that have been structured in such a way to now when you Google some students' names, very early on in the search results, you see this website comes up, you click on it, it's a picture of the student, it's their name, and it's saying, hi, I'm John Smith, and I recently signed a statement condemning Israel and and espousing all of these racist and anti-Semitic views. And um, so that's one of the things that I found to be really damaging, not just for the students themselves, but yeah. but in in a larger sense, it it worries me in that it it feels like it might deteriorate the fabric of yeah. civil discourse. And yeah, totally, totally, absolutely. I mean, you know, on one hand, you could say, "Hey, don't sign petitions where you don't really know the issues." But then, if that were the case, you couldn't sign any petition anywhere for anything or anybody. So, you know, but yeah, that's a that's the doxing thing, right? That's actually yeah. pretty dangerous, and you know. Well, and, yeah. And, and and so one argument that I've heard is that uh, you know let's let's say from people that my impression is they're more right leaning, they would say something like, well, to the extent that this intimidates students, that's actually perfectly fine. And the reason why is because historically universities have come to start intimidating students who hold more conservative views, and so this is people mm. on on the left with a capital L getting yeah. their just desserts in some ways and. I I really worry about letting that kind of animosity drive your opinions in part because I think there's ample examples wherein that type of action escalates rather than escalates conflict rather than improves understanding. And within specifically the doxing truck situation, one way that's happened is Adam Juliet, I think is his last name. The the main person who was responsible for the doxing trucks. Uh huh. He was recently swatted, which is where you make yeah, a yeah, yeah. phone call to a police station, say, "Help! Yeah. Hey, oh, hey, I'm holding someone hostage. Here's my address," and they send a SWAT team to your door. He was swatted by somebody who, let's say, felt sympathetic towards the students who were being doxed, and oh, man. and his response. He was interviewed about this after learning that this had happened. His response was essentially, "I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but I take this as evidence that." I need to double down on my efforts. Oh man. Okay. I got it. It's and like, so, yeah. 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 So, so even for the people who are, are seeing this and maybe reveling in it in a, in a retributive way, it, if your goal is to certainly change somebody's minds or at least to not devolve further into more intense conflict, this seems like an action that we should condemn. Yeah. This, this is not, this is not good, man. They, in a, in a civil society, right. In a civilized society, but in a thoughtful civil society, it's really not where we want to go. Um, and I understand that, you know, pe- people can have these really strong views and I, and I understand that people have strong views about the academy, about yeah. the universities, but most of the strong views about universities are, are really, are, are not, are not on point. You know, you have to go on to a university, right? Universities are, you know, sure, we lean liberal across the board. Professors lean liberal on average and students lean liberal on average, but everybody between the ages of 18 and 25 lean liberal. You know, it's a time when you, yeah, you believe that 
you know, the world can be better. You discover social problems and social issues. You believe the world can be better than what it is. We can stop hunger. We can stop war. We can stop poverty. We can stop, you know, measles, whatever. I don't know, however you want to lay it out. And so like, and, and we should do that. Like, why shouldn't we do that? We should, we can, so let's do it. And then who's going to do that? Well, we need the government to step in and spend money to stop this from happening. You know, well, that's a whole very much a, a what we would identify as a liberal society orientation. You, you know, use the large state to solve these intransic, intrans, uh, intractable social problems. So, yeah, of course, like, of course you are. And then you get to be, you get my age and you realize, Ah oh, man, you know, like wow, we haven't successfully gotten the government to solve any number of problems. We've solved some, we solved many. You know, this is really important and really valuable. But like, you just don't have those same strong views in the same way. Um, some people do, but most people don't. And but when you're young, but on, by contrast, so maybe you can weigh in on this if you will. I have students who are the opposite of that. They're 18 or 19 years old and they're cynical. There's always going to be hunger. Like, why do we think about it? Who could, there'll always be war. People are always going to kill each other, you know? And I'm like, oh man, like that's not where you want to be when you're 19 years old. Have a little bit of hope, my friend, you know? So when I have those students, I'm just like, stop with that message a little bit, you know? So anyway. yeah, I, I, I mean, you asked me to weigh in and, and one potential explanation and, and this may only be a small part i don't know but i wonder about you know as as people get greater and greater access to news at an earlier and earlier age if you think about just statistically what are the things that make make the news and make headlines yeah, they tend to yeah, be yeah. things that, that, that are quite extreme and and yeah and so you know, if you've been bombarded with stories and, and examples and, and video, too, of atrocities being committed all over the world, yeah. and it's been like that for as long as you can remember, then yeah. sure, I mean, maybe that denigrates some of your optimism. Yeah. Um, yeah, you think that you think that's what it is, right? It's news because it's rare, and then we assume right. that that's what's happening all the time. And uh, Maybe maybe in part. I, I, I don't know. But um, well, I did. I, I think that's a good point. I guess a good point. Yeah. Um, there was one question that I was hoping to maybe get your thoughts on, if if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. So there's been a lot of conflict among people who are protesting. So so granted, we're talking about a minority of students now, mm -hmm. but but I think it intersects with a, a broader disagreement or miscommunication that's been happening, and so that's why I bring it up. So for people who are, let's say, pro-Palestine and wanting to demonstrate their support. Some of the popular slogans, such as from the river to the sea, mm -hmm. are in one group's mind interpreted as a call for liberty, a call for an end of suffering for people mm -hmm. in Gaza. And in another group's mind, it's an almost explicit call for genocide. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, on the one hand, people who are maybe pro-Palestine are, are faced in a, with a weird position wherein you have to thread a needle of i'm levying critiques against israel the government yeah separate from israel to denote jewish yeah, people and, and, and then of course jewish people writ large one thing that i've heard from people that are that are who are jewish is saying well maybe you should use a different slogan yeah and and so 
you know, one question that I maybe have is how do you balance the need to change your slogan without opening yourself up to the possibility where anybody with bad intentions can claim that any slogan that you might choose is in some way yeah. interpreted as threatening and, and you sort of end up in this situation where you can't say anything at all. It, yeah. it's, a, it's a complicated question, but... No, it's actually a really, it's a, it's not that, it is really complicated. I suppose I could write a book on it, but I actually have a fairly simple answer. And I think, and from the river to the sea is from the Jordan river to the Mediterranean sea, right? So we're going to liberate all of that. And so here's what I, here's what I would say. The, vast majority of people who are saying this slogan in some kind of protest or something never heard it before two months ago or a month and a half ago, whenever people started to use this. Um, so that was, so we need to start there. So if you'd ask people like, Hey, what's that mean? And I don't have any, any idea. Okay. Now you got a bunch of people who are saying this slogan, uh, this, this statement, you know, this chant or whatever, I was watching a video earlier today of people with this chant and I'm thinking, well, you all, don't know really what it first off if i asked you what it means you would say everybody would have a different viewpoint right i don't think any of the people who i was listening to would say oh it means genocide of jews and the absolute elimination of israel as it stands right and give the land back to palestinians and send jews back to wherever they need to go i i would highly doubt that any of those folks would, would say that and some some would and some might but I, I have to say like I know people who are involved in these kinds of these protests pro-Palestinian protests mm -hmm. and who would have said those slogans and I'm like that's not what they're thinking right mm -hmm. however what I say is hey listen man but the point is once we start once you hear that there are certain slogans mm -hmm. that have certain meaning to certain people okay that particular meaning to certain people. Once you hear that, it's like, all right, I'm not going to, I think you have an obligation to say, Hey, I'm not going to use that slogan anymore. Now, especially this one, when we're talking about if, if some people are linking it to the genocide of Jewish people. Now, mind you, then at the same time, let me go back to people who are supportive of, of Israel mm -hmm. or not just supportive, but I mean, you know, who really yeah. are thinking that it's like, you also have a, a responsibility to say, hang on, are these, are these, is that what they really mean by saying that? Um, for me though, if, if I have any, if I would have any thought about what it means, and this is what I say to my, I talk about all the time with students, like when they put a swastik, you know, anyone who uses a swastika, you know what the swastika means, man. I mean, we know what it used to mean, but it, we can't right. use it anymore, right? So, I mean, if you're in Korea, you can. If you're in lots of places, you can. But you, but here in the Western world, you can't use the swastika because it has a certain meaning. And it no longer means good health and good right. well-being right. and so on. So you can't use it. You just can't. And if you do, and you have, then you, you know, you're going to get called out. It, it literally means the elimination of Jewish people in the world. So just stop. And so that would be my statement on that. Hmm. Yeah. Just, just back off. You don't need to use that chant. Use a different chant. Like, come on, man. If you want to support Palestinians, there are all sorts of things that you can say that don't, that aren't like characterizing hmm. or provoking provoking in that kind of way. And the, and the last thing, given what has happened to the Jewish people in the Holocaust, mm -hmm. the, the most kind of mean spirited, 
I mean, I'm just going to call it mean-spirited for a second. Thing that you can do to a Jewish person is say like, hey, any anything connected to the Holocaust that we're going to we're going to redo that or we're going to keep it going or we're going to whatever like that. How, that's just evil to go there. So like, yeah, don't. So that's why I would tell my students you, you, or people I know do not use that slogan. Man, come and, on. And do you have any advice then for people who in terms of when they're thinking about how do I leverage critiques against actions that the Israeli government might be taking that I don't agree with. How well, do I you, yeah. distinguish that from, yeah, let's say, more nefarious intentions? Yeah. Well, you know, I have one the the other day. I mean, Lori and I are going to talk about this oh, in, uh, on on Thursday. My wife and I a little bit, but yeah, like you know, I saw this the protest at Penn State where they had the the signage. You know, feminists against genocide. You know, free Palestine. I'm like, I'm looking around for all of these signs. I didn't see a single sign that said that would reference any kind of sympathy or support for the victims of October 7th, especially this protest happened when it was being made much more public of all the violence, the sexual violence that was committed against women on October 7th. So if you're a feminist, at the very least, make reference to that. Yeah. Like the horrific, the horrors that, that happened on that day, you got to make a reference to that somehow, and then you can make your other reference about Israel or Zionism or whatever you want to mean. But damn it, man, have show some indication that you're at least aware that that happened and like shit. Because if you don't, and you're just like feminist against genocide, free Palestine, it's like, well, the you know, Hamas was freeing Palestine. They thought they were freeing Palestine. Oh, so that means you support Hamas. Oh, so that means you support the sexual violence against women on that day. I'm like, okay. Because how do you not get there? I, I don't think right. that that's what any of these people meant with this signage. Oh, of course, it's not what they meant. But how do you not get there? So, anyway, that would be my take on it. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. It's, a, it's signaling at the very least, right? Right. Well, and, and, and in some ways, this is a uniquely challenging issue to, to yeah. signal because you necessarily lose some degree of nuance, but at, at, at the benefit of potentially... Uh, let's say echoing or, or providing additional amplification for your yeah. message. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. But this is one where losing the nuance seems really potentially damaging. Yeah, man. So, so how can yeah. you continue to, to try to share your message broadly in a way that's accessible? I think is the question. And, and, and you've provided some really interesting insights. So, so thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah. It's, it's hard. It's very difficult. Um, but it's not somewhere, but you know, at this level, when we're talking, and then this will be the last thing, and I'll, I'll sure. let you go. Um, you just have to know that this is so deeply painful and challenging to so many people, and the vast majority of human beings all around are are not. Nobody, nobody wants this, right? And now, but then you got activism that says, "Well, that's how we change things through activism," right? Yeah. So. Uh yeah, one, one, one maybe last thing to say on, on that is, so with respect to some of my research, a lot of it has been centered around what are some of the predictors of things like civil war. Uh -huh. And and there are some people, for example, there was a woman, Barbara Walter, who worked with the yep. CIA task force for a long time. And, yep. and so, and she recently wrote a book. Yep. I know that book. Yeah. And, and one of the consequences of, of, some of her work has been taking Americans 
taking very seriously the question of what would it look like to have a civil war yeah. and and that worry has permeated a lot of the people that i know and not in a not in, again in maybe in the theme of today not in a way that debilitates your day-to-day life but but in a way that if you list all of your concerns, it's somewhere on the list. Maybe it's pretty far down. <laughs> Dude, yeah, but it, it should be near the top, actually, as we approach elections. But Right. You know. And so, you know, one, one question then that arises from that worry is, would you want a civil war? And, and unanimously from people that I've spoken with, the answer is no. And, and you know, I've, I've heard a phrase by some political polling institutions that called, instead of the silent majority, it's the exhausted majority. Yeah, and yeah. and I think if you talk to people, exhaustion is is really the yeah. the thing that that exudes from them. And so, yeah. you know, my hope is that as people look at these sorts of conflicts, it's on the one hand you can feel a strong sense of I don't even if you would call it sympathy per se, but for people who are who have been the victims of of things that are just atrocious, you know, feel a sense of shared humanity towards them. Yeah, and. On the other hand, you can also feel that most people are probably not in support of this and are just trying to get, you know, get through yeah. their lives and, and that this is an exhausting and at, at least exhausting thing oftentimes. Yeah. Yeah. And then and then if we just allow ourselves to be exhausted and don't pay attention and don't don't say anything and don't step up, then we have I mean, this is, you know, I mean, then then we have a movement in directions that none of us want to go either. So it's kind of, it's very, yeah, it's, it's really tough, man. It's tough. I did a class last, last year, last fall, uh, a year ago, fall, no, last fall on, I, I think we called it not fun and games. Hmm. And, and so we had Julie came on, she's our, my wait, it's the social 19 uh, administrator for everything in the back end. She was in town. She's from Columbia. And then we had a guest, a colleague from Iraq and they just talked about Colombia and Iraq and be like, Hey man, you want to play game? This is what civil war looks like. So you want to look at it? Like, here's what it is. And we had some conversations. This is what you, this isn't funny games here. We're not like out just getting our, our toys and, and going out into the woods and playing Patriot games or something. This is serious, man. Don't, don't, don't be just making these silly statements about what we might have to, have a civil war and just clean this out. I'm like, oh man, yeah. shit, dude, you have no idea what the hell that means, man. Yeah. And uh, yeah. anyway, listen, bro. Uh, hey, awesome talking to you. I, I knew just from your emails, you know, mm-hmm. you were going to be really insightful and, and fun and interesting to speak with. So uh, I, yeah, I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's, I, I feel like I've learned a lot. I, I hope that for you know anybody watching that this has been maybe informative and and at least shared a perspective that they didn't have you know 40 minutes ago or whenever we yeah. started but but thank you this has been really wonderful and yeah yeah thank you man i really appreciate it You are listening to the audio version of Sociology 119. So how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing killing well. it, man. Where, where, where are you? I'm in Tennessee. 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 Good old Tennessee. Oh, awesome, yeah. man. Yeah. Actually, here's a here's a nice sociocultural manifestation. I was named after a 
uh, Bo Duke from the Dukes of Hazard. Oh, <laughs> so isn't that great? Uh, that's pretty cool. Man. Yeah. Oh man, so. you know the Dukes of Hazard. I didn't watch much television when I was growing up. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's at some point in which I just stopped, and I think that I stopped for sure at the time when Dukes of Hazard started. I don't think I've ever actually watched it, but I know what it is about people. Oh yeah, of course, fast it's, cars. It's, you know, I, yeah, it's like, iconic. Yeah, of course. Do you have a particular question or a particular? I think one of the things that sociologically that that sort of, or at least socioculturally, that's bothered me for a while is the idea of. Uh, white privilege and not uh-huh. I not the idea itself because I actually I I agree with the idea of white privilege and I acknowledge that it exists but the actual freight the term itself yeah I feel like when I when I just when I talk to a lot of people that are like very conservative they get so bogged down with the actual yeah. phrasing itself and what yeah. and and it just seems like it's too loaded of a term and that yeah. most people like if you actually walk people through most people if you walk them through what it actually means i find that most people agree that it exists and, yeah. and they and then that it's really just social advantages for certain groups of people um but the the phrase itself just seems so problematic to me and it actually ties back into uh what the guy before was saying about um i forgive me for forgetting your name but uh yeah lucas yeah lucas yeah lucas about um uh, sort of the implications of uh, like group mottos or just just mm-hmm. names for phrases, um, mm-hmm. and that you know the implications the f- the implications that those phrases or terms mean on fa- at face value um, can be very problematic. But that mm-hmm. you and and I've commented that before on you know certain sociological videos, and then but then I've had people that are like African American or whatever comment back and and basically say. Um, give the critique that he brought up, which was that there are going to be people that are going to, with ulterior motives that are going to continually attack phrases just because mm-hmm. they, they actually just disagree. They don't, they are, they disagree with the actual meaning of the phrase and yeah, what's reason. behind it. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't like, know, but what, like what they, is your, Go ahead. Let me just say this, and then you ask your question. Yeah. Like they, they would completely deny any level yes. of white advantage. Yes, right? of course. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, yeah. I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't see how you can be uh, like mm-hmm. delved in history or anything and have that opinion. But, mm-hmm. um, uh, but yeah, I guess. Do you think that there's any merit to changing terminology like that, or? Well. Well, the term will change over time, right? Mm-hmm. We'll start using, we'll come up with a new word and maybe it'll be like white advantage or. Yeah. You're, you're, I got one for you. Euro vantage. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> That's a cool term, even though it's like Euro. I don't know. I, I spent a lot of time in Europe and the white America and white Europe are very, very different places. Oh yes, and, of course. And so, uh, no, I think that you're right. If we just look at a certain advantage, I mean, it, it's, but here, but here's a problem, right? People start throwing, if you, if lots of people start throwing this white privilege term around, they're going to misuse it and they're going to use it in yeah. places like all white people have privilege. So it's like, okay, hang on a second. Yeah. All white people. And what do you mean by that? Uh, what do you mean by privilege? Like, what are we talking about here? And like, because it, it doesn't, because it's just not, tr- it's so, it's so 
silly almost there's there's almost nothing you can say that all white people have privilege about like i don't know yeah. i don't know what all white people what what it would be that would make all white people privileged so people also misuse the term and then that throws throws other people off yeah yeah but that's where you just have to clarify that it's 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 some sort of nebulous not it's not even nebulous actually it's just social privilege it's it's the idea yeah. that you're not having you're not being discriminated against based on your skin color necessary or you're less likely to be discriminated well but but here's the thing though man and there's a there's a point of time at which once we start living the day-to-day okay day-to-day -day life um i don't i can look you're down you're down in tennessee man so yeah. there are a lot of places in tennessee where i can find a lot of white people who uh, like they're the furthest thing from privilege that i could ever imagine like here in pennsylvania wherever i want to go right and I'm like, mm -hmm. well, then at what point does it even make sense to use that term to apply oh. to all white people? Well, that's right? why the that's why the term is problematic. Yeah, I think exactly. we agree. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because so, it, it's too because privilege is sort of. I mean, there are different types of privilege, and that's really the problem that we're running up against. Is that yeah. I mean, the, what the phrase is referring to is social privilege, but then people hear it and they just hear privilege and they yeah, they generalize yeah, exactly. it to all types of privilege. And yeah. It's, you know, yeah. of course, that there are people in like deep Appalachia that are extremely poor. I've seen yeah. some, some of the poorest people I've ever seen are in the uh, northeastern parts of my state. It's awful. Yeah. It's absolutely awful. And they're all white. Uh, and, yeah. Yeah. But um, if you, I guess, if you start seeing it in shades of gray, you're able to differentiate and and understand the specifics of what's being talked about. But the, that's the problem with the phrase is that it's not specific enough. Got you. Okay, so listen, now I want to respond to something you said that was actually a really cool statement. Uh, I mean, much of what you're, you know, everything you're saying is cool, right? But I want to just yeah. say this in particular. So you referenced the previous, you referenced Lucas, right? At what yeah. point when you have a phrase that really gets in, at what point do certain phrases get in the way of actually mm -hmm. having, being able to engage, right? Yeah. I would say white privilege might be one of those that at this yeah. point in time, it's really gotten in the way. I agree and yeah, and so like let's let's just because so many white people, I mean, we are getting to the place where black and brown there are advantage historical advantages, right? So if we look oh, yeah, at of course you know yeah, I mean we we look at like the, the the yeah the amount of wealth that's that's held by you know people people of, of white ancestry, European ancestry mm -hmm. compared to black and brown. I mean, there are things we can look at, but if we break it down into to ways to kind of understand specific populations, it's like, it doesn't, it's, it's not helping us anymore. And it's actually yeah. kind of taking us away. But the problem is we don't know how, it's so it's so difficult to say it, uh, to talk about it in a way without these pithy phrases that we start l lumping groups of people together. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, I, I guess I have a, a, another. This is I'm inextricably tied to the idea of white privilege. But when um, I sort of sort of when critical race theory started to that phrase started to pop up yeah. in like 2017, 2018, 2019, I, I started hearing all of these people trying to uh, describe it as some sort of ideology that uh, describes white people as. Uh, in, oh, this is from the white, like the sort of the white, maybe in Christian uh, yeah. conservative perspective, but that it's it that it tries to paint people as, um, or paint white people as inherently evil, 
Um, like, and I'm not sure, you know, when you, I've never actually heard someone say that, that is talking about that. So do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, Yeah. I I, I don't, I've never heard someone from the liberal side of the political perspective ever say that. I'm sure yeah, someone has. Yeah. Of course, there's going to be one person that says that. Well, some somebody out there, I suppose, yeah. would. But I, yeah, I did a class on critical research because you know, I, I think it was uh, Re- Re- Net Reason. I forget which magazine called me the face of critical race theory in the United States, right? <laughs> and I'm like, that's like, whoa, hang on a second, man. <laughs> like what? And then I I do this class. So people yeah. don't know that, right? I do this class yeah. on critical race theory and all these people who identify as conservative are watching the class and commenting on the class. Like, you know, this is the guy who his ideas should be out in the world. Everybody should be listening to this yeah. guy, the way I'm talking about race and critical race theory and so on. Cause I was, you know, like looking at it, examining it critically. Yeah. Meanwhile, on the other side, people are being told this guy is the face of critical race theory and everything that's wrong with academia in the United States. Yeah. I'm like, wait, which one is it, man? Yeah. Yeah. How does that feel to be, to be, to be late? I actually have that written down as a question. Like what, what is it like to be, what from your, do you just, I guess you probably just laugh it off when you get labeled well, I don't, from, I, I, from as too conservative at the same time as being labeled too uh, liberal. Uh, well, listen, you know what I mean? Pe- people who actually watch the class or watch my videos they 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 understand that you can't yeah. label me like that no and that's of that's not. all that matters to me but the only time it became a real problem is when tucker carlson did the did his two like hit pieces on me well the second one he called me jeff, jeff just called me sam they call me sam williams and not sam richard but which was a like a lesson. did he actually do like a, a bit yeah, no, he did a live. he did a bit on me on his eight o'clock network, man, That's, and that was it like, was Mark Stein who was filling in for Tucker that night. Oh, yeah. I see. you asked how it is for me. Well, it's mostly it's fine, except when somebody does something like that, and then I'm getting hate emails every you know seven or eight or ten seconds, right? And then that that's just really painful um, because it's so not what it is, but, but that's the risk. That's the risk you take, you know, of kind of being out there. And I try to continue to be really, really, you know, uh, thoughtful, but here, this is my final thing on critical race theory. Yeah. Critical race theory initially emerged as a, as a highly theoretical Mm -hmm. legal base, theoretical political base, um, way of critiquing race in the United States. Okay. Among academics, this was not yeah. this was not out there for average people to be. To, to these are these are articles that when I open these articles, and I go back like you know 20, 30 years, right? When I open these articles, as a guy, as somebody with a PhD who's thinking about this stuff, right? Yeah. I'm like, I don't know what the hell this person's talking about. You know what I mean? But but there is it's a very it, it emerged as a very select group of people talking academics talking to one another. Okay. Yeah. Well, then when you take that and people start defining it in their own way, well, okay, well, here's what critical race theory is, and here's what it means, and then here, and then suddenly you got all these folks who are like themselves gonna start going telling everybody else what it is. It's like I, well, first off, I'm not sure that's actually what it 
anybody was talking about in the beginning, but let's just say critical race theory is just a way of kind of critiquing or thinking about race and kind of new ways um, that, you know, challenges certain assumptions about inequality, right? Well, we've been doing that for, you know, 50 years, right? I mean, yeah. doing it longer than that, but so it's like, yeah, so it, it just sort of took on a life of its own. And then what happened, people in the more conservative world just took that pithy phrase, CRT, critical race theory, and then they were able to really use that and start saying, okay, this is what they're teaching to our first and second and third graders and so on. I'm like, damn, not those books, you know, like. Yeah, it's so complicated. I, I'm looking at these books and yeah. I'm like, I can't understand this book. Trust me, yeah. we're not, we're not teaching this to seventh graders, man, or yeah. for whatever, like, come on. But in any case, it just became a, it becomes a war of words. So, you know, and that's, where, yeah, it's like, that's, that's the, that's, that's stuff. politics. <laughs> it's always twisting, you know, meanings and so forth. Yeah. Well, well, and we're all responsible for it. So those of you, so I know there are a few people on the, yeah. on the stream, the one, you know, Michael, for example, I don't know if you're still on, but you say, yeah, I'm just so confused. Well, it's, it's okay to be confused. Like you're, you're I'm confused, right? I'm trying to figure this stuff out. And, and, and for me, it's my entire career has, has been to figure this stuff out. So um, it's okay. Like just, you just kind of stay with it and try to find something. I think that one of the things that people like about my class is that I, I'm starting at a kind of, at a level, like I'm letting students tell the story. And if they're telling the story, then it's going to, we're going to have the conversation at a level at which um, it's, it's going to be more understandable, right? If, if I were doing classes on, if I were lecturing about various topics, dude, I, I don't know. First off, I'd be talking to walls, right? But it's gonna, it's, it's gonna, it's just too, it's too complicated. It's too like you know. Anyway, okay, think, go, ahead. go ahead. No, you. I, think, go ahead. I, I was just gonna say, do you think there's an extent to which people? I mean, I, this is way easier said than done, but I understand that. So, so first of all, I'll get that out of the way. But do you think there's an extent to which people need to just sort of accept that the world is always changing, always has been changing and will continue to change. Yeah, for sure. Because that just, if you read history, it's always been that way and it always, yeah. and there's no reason to assume it won't continue to be that way. So yeah. I'm yeah. not blaming people that are sort of, you know, get caught up with nostalgia or reminisce over how they grew, you know, the, the social print or, sort of the social environment in which they grew up and sort of mourn that because that's understandable but at the same time you know you if you understand you know sort of the reality how you know is there a way in which people can come to accept that i i would say for me i've come to accept that and yeah. i don't just make these generalizable statements like generalizing statements like well, the world's like always been fighting or at war or this or that and always will well, be that. Yes. But what you're saying is, no, no, the world is transforming constantly. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And I think, that, I, yeah, for yeah. sure. But here's the other thing I want to add to that. But the world also is governed by like, so I'm, as a sociologist, there are mm -hmm. certain so-called sociological laws in place. Yeah. 
that that are also always happening. They're all they're always in in effect, right? And so, yeah, you also gotta kind of know what those are. And once you kind of know what those are, you realize, like, oh, like for example, what we what the conversation Lucas and I were having mm-hmm. is that a very in any collectivity or group of people, a very small number of people will be the most activated. Yeah, and they're going to be the ones that are out front and then and speaking. And then you're going you're and then another sociological law is that we will always look at those groups of people and assume that everybody in the group thinks like the people who are most activated. That's just a, that's, yeah, that is. And you got to say like, no, 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 that's not what's going on. You have to fight that. And these are the, I guess these are the sort of unfortunate or not, I guess it's not necessarily unfortunate because well, what this is, it's sort of a, I guess it's, these are leftover tendencies from our evolutionary history. Yeah, maybe. um, yeah, maybe. Uh, I mean, that's what the evolu- evolutionary psychologists would say, I guess. But yeah, um, um, yeah. yeah. Well, I guess the, the one constant in, is is human nature, and so. Well, but a human again, human nature is nothing more than the 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 you know the the ways in which our DNA and our is is the, is sort of um, structured the ways yeah. in which the human soul and psyche and spirit come together inside of our bodies. You know, this yeah. is very, you know, there's, there's, it's, it's, inc- it's incredibly complex, but there are things that we can know, right. And we do. Know, oh yes, of right? course. You see this and the ways in which human beings interact with one another that they don't really fully understand, but they're doing it on the basis of just what human beings are going to always do. That's why we, we have the science of things like sociology because we yeah. want to know, you know, I used to sit up in, on the 10th floor of my office and, and I had a, we, I was in a, we were, I was, I had my office in a sociology at Penn state. It's a 10 story building and mine was yep. on the 10th floor and I would sit in my window and just watch when the classes changed. And I would watch the, the patterns of students how they would walk around one another and be like hundreds of students going down these sidewalks. And I would see them doing the same things. Day you after notice day. the patterns. Yeah. 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 And I would say like those individual students and in semester after semester, year after year, the individual students aren't choosing that, but there's something in the ways in which human beings come together and they interact that they don't even really understand, but it's yeah. right. The laws I mean, of social yeah. behavior. If there weren't, if there weren't constant, or if there weren't cycles and, and uh, uh, tendencies that we had, then you wouldn't be able to organize this into a science it, it, from the, in the first place because it wouldn't be organizable. It'd be random. Yeah, so. yeah, it would be completely random. Yeah, dude, that's a that's a very cool insight right there. Yeah, yeah that's a really cool insight. So. I'll borrow that, actually. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> hey, thanks for jumping on. I appreciate yeah, of course. It, it was great yeah. talking to you. And oh, thanks for watching. Man. Yeah, yeah, All right. yeah, for sure. Welcome back. You are still listening to Sociology 119's podcast. Hey, Dave. <laughs> hey, uh, I was wanting to jump on. Um, I, I wrote earlier uh, because I was interested if I am ever a good candidate for a topic because um, my dad escaped Germany in, um, 
in the 30s. Um, 1938 was when he was able to escape Germany. Um, he had me when he was 63, so kind of a lot later <laughs> in in life. Um, but it was in, it's interesting to see his his process, his his um, uh, journey um, out of Germany. He had to then stay in Cuba for a year and a half. Um, before the U.S. allowed him to come in, they, he, I actually still have his passport and his the letter saying he could not come to the U.S. or stay in the U.S. because he'd be a public charge, um, mm -hmm. and just the process of citizenship and everything in that process. Um, but my question is kind of based on that. So our family, um, the diaspora, if you will, they we're the only ones that are in the U.S. or my dad passed, but um, so he's the only one that came to the U.S. The rest went to Israel, England, Australia, Austria, Argentina, all, all from that time. And so I, I like to look at the world as a whole and how my family has uh, changed and how my family lives in all these different countries. And I often hear people say now, um, you know, Americans off, you know, should not look at the world in the lens of an American. And the, I, I often see the people that are saying that often do it themselves too. Mm -hmm. um, and and I'm, I was just trying to figure out how to explain to them that they actually are as well, or, uh, you know, how to broach that. You know, it, it's like when people say, oh, you know, you know, Europe, they're not like Americans, you know, they, mm -hmm. they have a different mm -hmm. uh, society or, you know, in Africa, it's a different world. So we shouldn't, put our, our lens, you know, look at their life there. We need to explore and do that. Yeah. But those people who are saying that are also looking at it uh, at, on that aspect, I, I think. Yeah. They, uh, yeah. 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 So there's like, think so, so the question, so one question is this question of cultural relativism, right? Is yeah. this what you're saying? Like, you know, you gotta, you gotta look at the, you gotta look at the culture from the perspective of like being inside of that culture and you can't compare apples and oranges and like be really right. careful about that and understand things on their own terms and so on. Um, yeah. Like for example, I'll give you a perfect, let's talk about Israel for a second. Right. Mm -hmm. So the first time I was in Israel, I, I was like blown away. So I've traveled all over the place. Right. But I was blown away by like how, like, pushy people were right like how they kind of kind of nudge you out of the way i'm getting on a bus and this older woman just sort of comes and gets right in front of me and knocks me out of the way i'm like oh my god like whoa and then i i'm like well hang on a second hold on hold on uh this is kind of cool right like what is this right and then i'm in korea and like you know now i spend a lot of time in korea and koreans will sort of get in an odd way get like right up kind of in your space like i'm in the, i'm standing in line at the supermarket and someone's like pushing their cart like right up against me and they keep hitting me in the back and it happens again and it happens again and i'm like what what is that so then my first thing is my sociology side kicks in and says, okay, this is really interesting. I haven't experienced this anywhere else. Right. So this would be the good things and bad things. Like I gave you two things that aren't really, they're negative, And I suppose in a way that I describe them, but they're not necessarily negative. Right. Um, Cause I could, I could come up with other examples when they're not that. So then I say like, Oh, okay. So this is a curious thing. How, huh? Why is, what is this? Where's it come from? have I, have I just not noticed it in other places or have I missed it or whatever? Um, at what point could, are there certain things 
that would that we would so that's that's the beginning right i start i start with a place of curiosity so like huh right and and if you travel enough and if you open your eyes enough and i want you to respond to this i want to hear if you travel enough and you and you connect with other cultures enough and cultures that are very different from one another and you keep your eyes open really opening you're trying to be aware and not judge but really just see then it then then these kinds of things become become really fascinating. And then I think, okay, but aren't there certain things that are just going to be negative? Like for example, elbowing somebody out of the way to get on the elevator, like pushing by me, I'm just getting ready to get on the elevator. And here comes this woman, you know, I'm, I'm in, you know, Jerusalem, right? And she just comes right past me and I'm like, and gets on ahead of me. And I'm like, well, how is that not rude? And I'm like, well, how is it rude? Why is it rude? What, what is that? Why, why is that a problem? Like, what's the problem? You know, like just based on what we're, we grew up with. Yeah. It will even like anybody, most people would say like, well, but you just don't do that to another person. I'm like, well, she just did it. And then, then the next day, this other person just did it. And like, yeah, we don't really, in the U.S., we would be like, hey, what, what are you doing? But like, it happens so many, and I'm giving this story because it happened to me so many times, right? I'm like, so why is that a problem, right? Like, this isn't like female genital mutilation, right? That one I'm not going to get to. I, I had a conversation with a woman. I entertained her via email on female genital mutilation. I'm like, give me... Um, give me the, the best argument you can for why and how this is okay. And what female genital mutilation, if you don't know, it's cutting the clitoris so that women don't feel the kind of, kind of uh, the, the arousal in the way that you would, because the arousal is in the clitoris for women, right? So it's like, so for me, I'm like, give me a reason give me your best arguments. And then she gave me her argument and I come back and I'm like, yeah, well, what about this? What about that? But remained open the entire time because I'm waiting in my life for someone to finally explain to me how and why and when female genital mutilation could be okay. And, um, and she kept coming back and she was a brown woman. She was not a white woman. She was African, right? She was from Sudan. And, uh, and, and I kept going back to her and this went on for probably a month. And, and I never, I could never get there. And I wanted to, I really wanted to see that this could be okay sometimes. Like, and when I say that, by the way, anyone li- like Dave, when I say that, when I'm saying that intellectually, like I want it, I want to break every thought that I have that I feel like is inside of a box. I want to break it down. I want to get it outside the box somehow, but there's few things that I can't, you know? Um, so basically you were looking for the intellectual curiosity or the, idea to is to find out she believes it's okay and to find out why to and also to see even if, though it probably would not change your opinion on 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 it just to understand why you know where they are coming from why it would be um appropriate in their culture for that to happen and then to yeah. see if that that's a valid reason for like not a valid reason but um if if that to better understand why they truly believe that is the appropriate thing to do. Yep. Yeah. Why it would be okay. Yep. And, and you do millions, millions of young girls are mutilated 
you know, every year. Right. So this is not like, uh, I mean, we're trying, you know, the world's trying to ban this. Right. But yep. well, when it's that many people and you're, I'm this American guy sitting over here, it doesn't matter that I've been around the block, you know, but I'm just sitting here. And I'm like, Oh, I'm watching what you're doing over there. And there are millions and millions, tens of millions of people that are thinking this is okay. Who, who am I to like say that you clearly you're wrong. But then I think, but wait a minute, hang on, man. This is women. This is, this, this is, tor- some things are going to be wrong. You know, you look at you, like look at your family, right? Like genocide's going to, this is a problem. So I can't make the, I'm not even going to make the argument. Well, there would be some times when it would be okay to try to, to genocide an entire group of people. It's like, I'm not going to do that. Right. But then I'm thinking, but, but this is kind of, this is like a micro piece right right so i'm like well if that many people let me just be true to who i say i am and really try to listen and understand but i i you know i wasn't able to get there um right yeah it would be interesting if if it would be possible to get there because i'm i'm with you i'd love to find out you know how it progressed to come to the point where it's just done um and they say it's okay but they can't mm-hmm. articulate why you, you know a, a a way other other than what they already believe, you know? what they already believe, and and sometimes it's just it's a cultural practice, right? Yep. And then you never. I asked her, so I gave her the opportunity. Hey, because she watched one of my videos, and I mentioned it, right? And then this was years ago, right? A number of years ago, and I'm like, but she's never been asked to articulate it. So I'm like, okay, here, go ahead, man. Here you are. And I was asking her all sorts of then. I was leading her along. You're like, well, what about this? And what about that? And I was giving her the opportunity to open different doors and like make an argument for it, you know? Um, but, you know, in the end, I wasn't convinced. I, it's not to say I couldn't be convinced someday. At least it, maybe it's a good thing for some people. Hang on. But if you're watching, I don't, it's the reason I'm talking about this because it's the one, there are certain cultural practices that are just wrong 100% of the time, this is one of them. So female genital mutilation. And yet here comes this person coming along and saying, well, I don't think you understand it. And so therefore let me teach you. I'm like, Hey, teach me. Right. So that's, that's kind of what I'm, what I mean when I say that. In addition to that, what I also see. um, So I, I collect catalogs from around the world and I also see the, um, culture change over time. So, you know, the um, JC Penny catalog, Sears catalog from the 50s and 60s, yeah. 70s, compared to the ones from Germany or France, like Three Swiss or um, Quella or uh, Neckerman, different ones. The style back then between countries was very different yeah. compared to yeah. now. And it's so similar. Um, and, you know, that's what I see is the culture, you know, the um, entertainment culture, the different, yeah. you know, that's why Taylor Swift can sell out concerts worldwide. Um, you know, granted the Beatles were able to do that too. Um, but there's a, you know, it was the, uh, you know, the British invasion at that point, if you will. And now I'm seeing not just entertainment and, and different things like that, but now I'm seeing um, the, uh, um, you know, the talk about occupation or the Black Lives Matter thing spreading to England yeah. and other countries as well. Yeah, for sure. 
Yep. And so it's like, is that pushing the American society culture, you know, from entertainment to political goals, or yeah. is it really a worldwide um, event causing these? Well, okay. This is a re- this is an awesome question. I'm gonna I'm gonna give two answers to it, and then we're we're gonna cut off. Saying thanks for this. This is really cool because my wife is calling me from the other room to go have our beer. We have a we have coffee every morning together, and we have a beer every evening together. Uh, so here's the, here's what I would say about that. Things like the B, we saw BLM blow up in cultures around the world, right? Well, there's a way in which people of African ancestry are treated. Um, not exactly the same, but similarly in cultures around the world, right? You know, given a certain second-class status. Again, not not 100% of the way, but certainly certainly less status. And so, okay, so so something like that grabs on. They you know they pick it up, and you know wherever wherever you you might be, wherever that might be happening. And so, like, okay, well, there's one. It's not going to take off if it doesn't if it doesn't like capture what's actually happening, you can't, you can't have a protest around something that there's no need to like, for example, you're not going to go back to Israel and people kind of shoving other people out of the way, getting on the buses and elevators and God knows. So, well, there's not going to be a protest about that there because it's just like, that's not a problem. You know, it's not going to pick up. So by the way, I learned, I learned to just be more assertive. And that's what people wanted. Like, no, you need to be, don't just stand there waiting to get on the damn bus. This is what I finally learned. Some, some woman explained this to me. You can't just stand there slowly getting on the bus. We're going to push past you. You need to get on the bus, man. We're in a hurry. And I'm like, oh, damn, that, that explains it, right? It, it wasn't like. Uh, and my wife's I mean, from Thailand and I learned very quickly some of the public transport stuff yeah. over in Thailand. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty. It's really awesome. Okay, so the so the BLM piece. Um, I had a second response to that. Um, it's not going to take off where it. It's it's yeah. Oh man, I I had a different. I mean, did that response kind of resonate at all? Like that's a little bit. Yeah. Wait, you said are we kind of pushing certain? Oh, here's my other thing. My wife and I lived in. We were in Krakow, Poland. We spent uh, a couple of months there, and. They had this most one of the most beautiful buildings in the center of Krakow, and McDonald's bought it, and they put a McDonald's in there. Mm-hmm. And my wife and I, we would just be like, oh, "God, man, these stupid! Here we go, the American corporation, you know." And they, we go, we the most beautiful ornate building, we stick a McDonald's in there. It's like, what? Are, what? Are, you know, it's just so the, the ugly American, right? But the poles. They loved it. The place was packed every single day. And at some point, my wife, Lori, said, why am I concerned about pushing our culture onto them? They clearly want McDonald's food. Like, who would I, who am I to say that you, you can't have McDonald's food? We don't want, we don't eat a McDonald's. We haven't eaten a McDonald's in, I don't know, decades, right? But they obviously want it. So, I mean, there's some things that you're going to push on to other people that are a problem, right? You know, toxic chemicals and God knows what. But, in the, well, I guess you could say McDonald's food is toxic chemicals. But but nonetheless, it was like it was such a mind shift for us. It's like the polls, like whatever, if you want McDonald's food, I'm not going to st- cr- be your spokesperson. You know, there, there you go, man. Yeah, look at that. 
Yeah, that wasn't the one. That's a new one now, by the way. Uh, actually, that was that was there also. That was a different one. But look at that building. Yeah, this other building was even more ornate. So in any case, Dave, yeah, that's yeah, my response. It's good to see the reuse versus rebuild um, in yeah. a lot of different countries too versus, you know, yeah. even a, um, you'll, you'll have a McDonald's that was built here in the 80s demolished to rebuild. Um, granted, that's not a, a classic old building, but it could be, uh, yeah, and you will see it in some some places in the U.S. where they repurpose an old building yeah. into a drugstore yeah. or something. But that was good to see there, and it's often seen in Europe. They repurpose old buildings because it's better to reuse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I, that's it, man. That's it. And so there are certain things that are problematic, right? Um, just rebuild, just go tear things down and rebuild, use overuse resources and stuff. Yeah, that's a kind of a thing like, Hey, we'd probably, we really would be better off if we weren't doing that. Um, the world would be better. Our future generations, the progeny maybe won't make generations within us will just be a future generation, but yeah. But nonetheless, the, 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 your point is like, yeah, let's kind of go easy. Let's not take it too far. Hey, awesome, man. Hey, I, hey, where are you calling from, by the way? Binghamton. Ah, Binghamton. Ah, very cool. Yep. Nice. Yep. I've and been to Binghamton a few times. Yeah. Yeah, great, great university, great area for the most part. The carousels are amazing. If you're ever here in the summer, the uh, um, former corporation, Endicott Johnson, donated six carousels um, to the ah. community. They're all free to ride. Fifth oldest zoo in the country, hockey, baseball, you name it. It's yeah, a good area. Yeah, yeah. No, I applied for my PhD to to do my PhD work at Binghamton, and I got turned great. down. They didn't admit me. So, oh no. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, that's what they it lost was a good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I don't know. I wasn't. I don't think I was very uh, thoughtful back then. Maybe I don't know. whatever it was. Destiny, destiny brought me here. That yeah. not destiny, the streamer. By the way, uh, <laughs> but yeah, and my undergrad is from there in uh, human development, and my master's is a combo student affairs and public administration. So looking at, um, you know, the whole learning process from birth to colleges has been interesting. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. It's just brutal winters up there, man. I got to think it's not yeah. a few inches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Dave, thanks, man. Thanks for, thanks for jumping on. Really appreciate Thank it. You. Yeah. Jeff, we're gonna head out. So, yeah, man. Uh, thank you everybody for watching on YouTube and on Twitch. This oh. is the first time that we've streamed on Twitch, and I don't even remember the last time we were there. Matt reminded me of what the bubbles were, and the uh, notes were there. Was, was anybody watching on Twitch? Of course, we had a couple of people. Yeah, hey, thanks. And high speed moving turtle. Speaking of that, I better be a high speed moving turtle and get in the other room. All right, man. Hey, so we'll be back Thursday. Thanks. All right. See you, everybody. Be well. Yeah, be well. Ah, yeah.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Social 19. Thank you to Ryan Dupree for the tunes. All other audio is used legally, licensed with MotionArray.com. Join Social 19 on YouTube Tuesdays and Thursdays at youtube.com slash social19 slash live. And this podcast is edited by Hamill Media LLC Podcasts. Yeah.